Welcome to Helpline 3. I'm Jade Belexa. Today we are talking about what to expect before, during, and after your women's health doctor's visit. Antonio Pizarro is a gynecology and urogynecology doctor at Willis Knighton Pelvic and Reconstructive GYN Surgery. He is here to explain what you need to know. Dr. Pizarro, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Yes, absolutely. Well, remember, as always, we are taking your questions throughout the program, so call us at 318-219-4569. Well, let's start off from the beginning. When should our viewers consider being seen by a doctor? That's, that's a really good question. I think there's two sides to that. Obviously, the, the first thing we think of when we go to the doctor is that something's wrong, something needs to be addressed that's possibly going to harm my health. And patients tend to know that. They'll know, you know, something's just not going right with my health, whatever that is, whether it's a woman's health concern or otherwise. So of course, never ignore your body. Often we, we hear that we know our body better than anyone else, and that's true. So if, if you're feeling unwell, if something is new in your life that's causing a symptom that you know is just not right and it's not going away, you know, if it comes once and you feel it again two years later, it's probably nothing. But if it's something that you know is not right and it's persisting, that's definitely a really good time to get some help. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, the other side of it is what we call screening or what in general we can call a checkup. That depends on the patient, it depends on the age, but a good sort of bottom line answer is regular, whether it's one to two years in between visits. And of course, if, you're, um, if you have a special condition that might require m visits more often, your physician or your nurse practitioner or physician's assistant will tell you you need to come every, every three months. So the answer is long, but bottom line is if we know something's wrong, get it evaluated, don't ignore it. And then as far as screening for maintenance, every one to two years, depending on the case. Okay. <clears throat> Should patients take friends or family members to their visits? That's a, I love that question because I, I say yes. It, sometimes the things that I deal with as a women's health provider can be very private. And I see in seeing patients Often patients say, well, no, I don't want my loved one, whether it's a spouse or a significant other or whoever, I don't want them with me, so I'm coming by myself. But it's very common for me to see patients, my patients who come with their spouse or with sometimes a parent or sometimes with their child, if, if, the, if, the, if they have them. They'll come and, and they can share in the, in the visit, and there's always, it's always good to have an extra pair of ears and I invite that personally so I think it's a good idea it's always I would advise someone who's going to the, see the doctor to tell whoever they're bringing with them why they're going to the visit especially with something as private and personal as women's health can be be sure that they that you're both on the same page or uh, but definitely having a loved one is can be invaluable especially uh, in what I do I've been doing robotic surgery uh, for since 2005 and it can be a very uh, daunting thing to face surgery and if you have something like that that's that's going to be discussed something as big as surgery it might really help to have someone with you yeah that's that's something you know i haven't thought about bringing someone to a to a doctor's visit so that would definitely kind of ease the anxiety it can it can because if i i can't tell you how many patients i've had that um well, let, let, we all, we've all seen it on TV and otherwise when the doctor or the nurse tells everybody to leave. You know, I, I don't know that that's, all, depending on the case, that's always the best idea because some patients need that loved one with them, sometimes even during an examination, certainly during the conversation. So 
and then things get lost in the shuffle in discussing things and patients sometimes have questions and on the way home I tell them I say look on the way home you're both gonna have questions they're, you're both gonna say did he say this or did he say that and and you can have that discussion but bottom line call me because if there's some confusion between what you heard and what your part your friend heard or your, or your loved one call me and maybe we can clarify that yeah having that extra set of ears would definitely be helpful are there any pre-appointment stress reduction tips or breathing relaxation tips you could share? Yeah, I think that in general, the doctor's visits can be very stressful. They can, and, and, where, and that's, there's good stress and bad stress. I always tell patients that I would prefer, especially when I'm first meeting a patient and talking about something complicated, uh, I would prefer to have some sort of stress at the beginning while we're trying to work things out and understand what's going on, then stress after, say, a treatment that wasn't fully explained. So it's good to have that, that kind of stress, sort of the good stress that helps us think. But the bad stress can be something like significant anxiety, especially if a patient is being, being managed for anxiety or depression or something that requires special attention. I would say, do what you can to be sure that you're feeling comfortable with the visit ask questions before the visit. What's the doctor gonna do on that day? Are there gonna be procedures that are gonna be done? Are, am I gonna have to sign anything? So ask questions before you arrive of whoever's giving your appointment. But other things you can do is prepare with sim some simple strategies like be sure your breathing is slow, be sure you're, you're well nourished, be sure you've had a, a meal before you go depending on the case so that your body is functioning where it needs to be. Get a good night's sleep. If you've had a stressful morning, I've had so many patients who they call and they say, you know, I almost didn't make it to my appointment. I saw a car accident. We had to stop. I didn't know if I was going to mm. make Just little things like this. And I say, don't, don't let that bother you. Call. Say you're going to be late. We'll, we'll hold this, the appointment open for you. Let us know or we'll reschedule you. So my point is do what you can to let, take that out of the stress, uh, that part of the stress out of you uh, so that you can focus on your health care. Mm -hmm. And we have a caller already, Misty. Good morning to you, or good afternoon. <laughs> the morning flew by Ooh, so quickly. Afternoon. What is your question for Dr. Pizarro? Uh, my question is, I'm 80, uh, 81 years old, and I had a hysterectomy when I was around 50-something. Uh, I can't remember. But um, do I still need a pap smear? Um, thanks for your call, Misty. Uh, you asked if, if you still need a pap smear after you've had a hysterectomy and you're 81. Your hysterectomy was yeah. in 50, your age 50-something. Was your hysterectomy for cancer? Uh, no, I had fibroid. Okay, so the, the, pap, the answer is probably the answer is no. I would say no, you don't need a pap smear. Of course, some patients might benefit from a pap smear if you're having special certain symptoms, like if you're having uh, trouble in your female area, like bleeding, you should probably be seen and that might involve a pap smear. But the pap smear is a cancer screen that is not necessary for patients when they've had a hysterectomy and they're otherwise healthy. I see. Now, now well, I, um, oh, go ahead. I have been using the estrogen patches, estradiol, I still need Use them. Now that's that's a, that's. I'm glad you asked that because that's what I was tying in with. That one part that I didn't finish with, sort of, is that you still need to be seen for other screening things. So, for example, you're taking estrogen. 
I would recommend, and depending on what your doctor uh, thinks is right for you, that you continue with getting your mammograms, for example. A mammogram is not related to the pap smear, just to be clear on that. The mammogram is, is a test to do, that's done to test for breast cancer. You're taking estrogen. Estrogen can cause uh, inc slightly increased risk of breast cancer. So be mindful of those things. That has, that's nothing to do with the pap smear. So uh, should you be taking estrogen? That depends on why you're taking it. So be sure you check with your doctor about why am I taking this medicine? What is it doing for me? If I stop it, will it cause me any trouble? And then that's the best answer I can give you there as far as whether you should be taking estrogen. It really matters why you're taking it in the first place. Okay, I have one more question. Um, sometimes I have like a lot of pains in the bottom of my stomach, and then it, it seems like everything has dropped to the bottom of my stomach, like my bladder and everything. Uh, what what's causing that? It's hard to know. That definitely sounds like something that requires a doctor's visit, a proper evaluation. The, and to, to do an examination, maybe run some tests and see what's going on. There's so many symptoms that overlap. So for example, uh, it could be something related to your intestines. It could be the bladder itself. It could be something related more to other parts of the pelvic area. It, it really requires, it sounds like that you're gonna need to uh, be evaluated for that. Okay, now I have been diagnosed with a hernia and there's a, a little knot around about my nape, and they said it was a hernia. Right, now that's a, now that, that's a very different area um, uh, than the pelvis and the female area, but hernias can cause belly pain sometimes, and if you think it might be related to that, I think having your hernia specialist see you would be a good idea as well. Okay, thank you so much. Oh, thank you. That answered my question. Thank you, Misty. Okay, so a lot of good questions there. Yeah, yeah about the hysterectomy and the, the pap smear. So after a hysterectomy, um, you don't have to have a pap smear after it that? De it depends, as I told, as I told the caller, uh, Miss Misty. Hysterectomy refers to removing the uterus, and mm -hmm. that, that word can sometimes lead to some confusion, and, um, uh, but I'll, I'll just leave it at the, the idea that hysterectomy means removing the uterus. And uh, that's a surgery that I've been doing since 1997 um, and is very common. It's one of the most common surgeries done in the country. The reason for the hysterectomy matters as far as pap smears. So if a patient, for example, had some sort of cancer or precancer, the exactly how long ago that was matters as far as whether that patient should keep getting pap smears. And generally, if it's less than 25 years after a patient has had cervical cancer, for example, or a cervical precancer, some sort of condition that might have led to cancer of the cervix, which is the opening of the womb, those, and patients should know whether they had that, would, would know whether they have that diagnosis. They've, they've been told that and they, they're aware. Then you should probably maintain pap smears for a good 25 years after that to be sure it doesn't come back. So it just, it just varies. Okay. But in general, after a hysterectomy, the pap smears are not, not appropriate. Okay. Well, tell us, we were talking about relaxation, breathing. Tell us how patients can prepare mentally ahead of visits. I think the best way to prepare mentally is to have the things that you know about yourself ready to tell the doctor. So mm -hmm. you, if you arm yourself with information about yourself, then you'll be able to interact during the visit more productively and you'll feel, you'll feel just sort of less stressed out. One simple thing, bring your medicines with you. 
uh, my doctor requires me to bring my medicines, my literal medicines. So if I take Advil, I gotta take, take the bottle with me. But not every doctor requires that. I at least ask for an updated list. So bring that with you so that you know your medicines. When you, before you arrive, as I mentioned earlier, ask whoever schedules you, or if you're referred by a doctor to see a doctor, ask what's gonna, be, what's gonna happen at this visit. So arm yourself with information. Other things like, be sure you remember your own history. So before you go, ask yourself, okay, do I, did I have a surgery uh, when I was a kid? Yeah, I did have that surgery. Okay, and be sure you can add that to your history so that nothing's left out because that helps the, the doctor or, or other provider know how best to serve you. So if you prepare yourself by, with, with information and knowledge, also by asking the right questions, prepare a list of questions for your doctor. Why are you running this test? You know, are you sure I need this medicine? Always try to um, have as much information for yourself ahead of time as, as, as you can before you arrive to the visit. And something else that, that we touched on earlier is have a support system. So whether it's someone you bring with you or someone that you feel like you can call after the doctor's visit to let them know how it went, that, is, that is, can be crucial for, for many of us to have someone we can lean on after the doctor's visit. And that person might have questions that for, for the doctor that can be uh, answered after the visit. And the questions are, are definitely helpful to, to be prepared, but what if a patient feels like their questions haven't been answered during their visit? What can they do? No, nobody's perfect. So when I, I always try to engage patients the best I can and use non-medical terms. That's not always so easy. Um, we, so, and especially when we're doing complex things, it can get complicated. If you feel like you have questions that either you didn't ask or you asked and you didn't get an answer, ask it again. Or call the office back afterwards. Or often better, make another appointment so that you can have a face-to-face -face discussion. Things over the phone sometimes get lost and can be, they aren't translated as well. They may not, there may not be a clear connection. So if you have questions that either you didn't ask or that you asked but don't feel like you got a really clear answer to, ask it again and say, I really don't think I, I got that. And if that persists, then it might uh, be something where uh, handouts, written uh, information can supplement that. Uh, if you're at home and you're like, you know, I, that doctor said this and I just, that didn't make sense, use the internet. Sometimes patients t will tell me, I know y'all hate it when we use the internet. I, I, I think that's, a few of it, I don't. I wouldn't su suspect that physicians and nurses that we hate when patients use the internet. There are things where the internet can be misleading, but that's where a good question can come out of that. So I always encourage patients to research their their condition and their doctor's visit on the internet and get the information they can and say, I learned this on the internet about this. Is this true? And then that we can have that discussion. That. <laughs> yeah, because I've had doctors say, don't Google your symptoms, you know, don't, don't I mean, do that. I, 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 see the, I see the reason for that, because <laughs> if, you, if you Google chest pain, you're going to freak out. If you Google hand pain, oh my God, someone's going to have to amputate my hand. I have a blood clot in my... I mean, <laughs> I think it doesn't hurt to have more information. And then if I Google hand pain and I say, oh, they're going to take off my hand, I can ask my doctor, are, are y'all gonna take off my hand? And they're gonna say no and, and have that, I think so. I, I, I think it's, 
more information is always better because it might trigger questions that I otherwise might not have had uh, for my doctor. And so I think it's, I, I, I value the internet. I think we just have to take it in sort of in stride and, mm -hmm. and like any other information source, be critical of it, get a second opinion when needed. And that's another thing that, that I'll, I'll, you know, I, since I said the phrase second opinion, it's always good to get another opinion from another physician or from another nurse practitioner. This doctor said I have this. Is she right? Do I have this? Uh, and, 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 and schedule another visit with another healthcare provider and get a second opinion. I think that's always valuable. Hmm. So this is something I haven't thought of. Is stress sometimes helped by having your vitals taken last? I'm glad, yes, I'm glad you brought that up. That's something that can be a stress reduction technique. So if you know about yourself, for example, that every time I go my blood pressure's high and I don't have high blood pressure and they've checked it and then it goes down and I take my blood pressure at home and it's normal, wait till after the visit. You can ask, um, I have a patient that uh, I've been seeing since 2005 and she has never let me take her blood pressure. She doesn't want her vitals and we have it on there. It's, it's a, she, uh, that's her reasons. She and we make it clear in the chart, you know, this patient does not want her vitals taken um, at all. And I respect that. I can't force that on her, but she's doing well. And, and my point is that the answer to your question is, yeah, I think take your vitals last because your temperature is not going to change, you know, in the, in the time of the visit. Your blood pressure might normalize as you've gotten more information, you're less stressed, especially if it's the first visit. Most, so many of my patients are referred to me and I'm uh, and so many of my patients are new because that's the type of specialty I'm in. Uh, and so they're meeting me for the first time about something that can be so personal. I can only imagine how painful that can be for some patients, how stressful that can be. So putting the vitals at the end can, is a tip that I've, that I've uh, heard some patients say helps them. And if it's appropriate, I think you should request it. Because sometimes I go into my doctor and my heart is just like beating out of my chest and the nurse will say, have you had coffee this morning? <laughs> and I think I'm just stressed about being there. Exactly. Or the walk from the car or the heat. Yeah. Or, the, or yeah, maybe you did have coffee or I think it's, <laughs> it may not reflect what actually is going on inside your body to have that heart rate of 105. Mm -hmm. My heart rate's not 105. I know it's 80. I took it <laughs> last night, whatever. Uh, I think that uh, putting the vitals at the end can be helpful, but that, that just ties into the idea of knowing your body, preparing for the visit in a way that helps you have the best interaction you can so that at the end of the visit, you have as much information and the doctor has, or nurse, has as much information as well so that they can help you. Yeah, yeah, some good advice there. Well, can you talk about radiology, x-rays, and other tests that are done? In my specialty in women's health, I would, there, there's, a, there's a whole group of things, but the first thing that comes to mind is the ultrasound, the sonogram. Whether, I don't do pregnancy-related care anymore, but many women who do, uh, forgive me, many women are probably familiar with ultrasound for, um, for pregnancy-related care. So that, but that test can be used throughout the body, and of course, in, in my specialty, in, in, the, in the female area, ultrasound can be used. And that's probably one of the most common tests I ordered. But other blood tests, like blood counts, uh, chemical tests, tests of kidney function can be done through blood tests. So sonograms, blood tests, x-rays like a CAT scan. We probably, many of us are familiar with a CAT scan. A lot of viewers are probably familiar with CAT scan. That's an x-ray, a computerized x-ray where you, they run you through a sort of a hoop. They might give you an IV dye uh, mm -hmm. before you have it done. And some of these tests can be scary. Waiting for the results can be scary. And it's, it's crucial for during the visit, if a doctor or a nurse says, this is the test we're running, 
to have questions about that and be prepared. But the tests, the tests can be so varied and often patients go every three months to see a doctor and they're getting the same blood test done. And it, it's super important for patients to have a good discussion about why the test is being done, what it means, and, and have a good background on it. Mm -hmm. How do you answer why a particular test is being done and what will the test show? I think the first thing is when a patient's getting a test done, is it's incumbent on us to, to be sure that before we even talk about the test that we say why it's being done. But that might not happen. And so if, if you're at a doctor's visit and or they call you later and, the, and the, the staff or the nurse says, the doctor has ordered this test. First question is, why is that being done? What's that gonna show for me? So ask, why? What does this mean? Why am I getting it done? So remember to ask why. If, if a patient asks me that, I say as clearly as I can, the reason I'm running this test is because I have this question. My question about you or about your health is, is this going on? Are you're having pain. So do you have a lump that I might be able to find with this sonogram? You tell me you're weak. So are you low on blood? That's why I'm having the blood drawn. So, I, so it's important to use sort of common non-medical words as much as possible. But I think the word why is very important for patients to ask. Mm -hmm. And Kelly is on the phone right now. Kelly, good afternoon to you. What question do you have for Dr. Pizarro? I would like for him to discuss when you become a certain age and you no longer need to take hormones, why does uh, it seem to you seem to end up getting bladder infections. That's my experience. That's a, that is a great question. There's two sides to that. If a patient is taking, if a, a woman is taking estrogen after menopause, meaning that her natural hormones production has stopped, she stopped having periods, or if she had a hysterectomy, her ovaries have stopped working, often patients will take estrogen or other hormones by mouth or with a patch or creams, it just varies. If a patient is taking estrogen that gets in the bloodstream, like a pill, normally we think of that for symptoms that that patient is having that have to do with the general body. Like, I just don't feel well. I have hot flashes. I don't sleep well. Th that's a general way to think of that. That's not always true, but that's a general way to think of it. There are other types, other ways that estrogen can be used. In particular, estrogen can actually be applied to the private parts, to the, to the, to the vagina. That can be done. We know that some women, some women, not all, will get recurrent urinary infections. We don't exactly know why. For the most part, it just happens when it happens, but not all women get that, whether they use estrogen or whether they don't use estrogen. And it's been shown that vaginal treatment with estrogen will reduce the risk of urinary infections for many women. I don't think that's been shown always that if you take a pill by mouth that that will also reduce urinary infections but it but it makes sense that it would so the answer to your question sounds like you may if if you're someone who has who is who the in the as a bottom line you're getting a lot of urinary infections then what i would recommend is get evaluation by a specialist for urinary infections it may not so much have to do with estrogen in your case, although they can overlap the way I mentioned. So what I will say is if you take a thousand women that are using estrogen and you just stop taking the estrogen for those patients, not all of them, in fact, probably very few of them will just start getting urinary infections out of the blue. It's sort of the other way around. 
Does that does that answer your question? It does. Uh, well, I went through about five weeks of recurring infections. I take the medication, then it come right back in a week, and so on. Well, I got I was put on a really strong antibiotic, and it finally went away, and was also prescribed um, a vaginal cream for the estrogen. There, so, that makes sense. That makes sense. And, and it's not uncommon for patients to get urinary infections and it's hard to treat and it's just one episode that lasts a while. Recurrent infections mean several infections in a year or two in six months, that kind of thing. So long story short, it, it, we have to tailor it patient to patient, but what you described sounds very reasonable. And it sounds like if you're getting repeated infections, that the, the, that preparation you were, you were uh, issued by your f uh, physician is, is, is gonna be helpful for you. Okay, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for calling. And let's talk about um, some tests to get ready for fasting or, or diet changes. Talk about that some. When preparing for a doctor's visit or if you're in the process of, of a, maybe a series of visits with a physician, nurse practitioner, there might be something about your care that's gonna require you to change the way you eat or even the timing of it. But I will say that let don't assume that. So a lot of times patients will come to my office for their first visit and they haven't eaten. I didn't eat today because I didn't know if we were going to run any tests. I, I would always encourage patients, please eat unless someone tells you not to. That can be dangerous, especially if you have conditions like diabetes where your blood sugar can drop. So uh, although there are some tests that require us to be fasting, meaning that we have nothing other than maybe some water the morning of the test or right before the test, maybe a little coffee, uh, if that's the case, then be sure you're asked to do that before you do it to avoid any inconvenience or sometimes some possible danger depending on what your medicines are. Also, there are some x-rays that require you to actually drink more than you might want. So for example, for uh, a pelvic ultrasound, often women are required to drink a lot of water before the test so that they can have a full bladder for the exam. And these, the reason I want to talk about this is that this can be really inconvenient for patients. And I, I had a patient who had to have a, what's called an MRI, which is an x-ray that takes about 30 minutes and you're put into this small sort of cocoon mm -hmm. uh, tube and, and it takes a lot of patience to, to sit there. And this patient had a lot of anxiety and, um, and she told me this ahead of time. So um, what I had talked to her about was doing a different kind of MRI called an open air MRI that's not quite as confining. And for some patients, it might be necessary to give a little bit of uh, anxiety medication right beforehand if it's appropriate. So these kinds of things about preparing for a test and having d dietary changes maybe, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, be sure that certain blood tests are in line before the test are very important conversations to have. We have Pat on the line right now. Good afternoon, Pat. What is your question? Yes, um, I wanted to ask the doctor. Uh, I'm, <clears throat> I'm 83 years old, and um, my doctor, my gynecologist, took me off of estrogen when I was uh, 69 and 70. And um, I had a total hysterectomy with the uh, with the uh, ovaries and everything, you know, mm -hmm. in uh, 80, 95. And he took me off of the estrogen, saying that it is it is women that are getting older. It could cause a lot of problems. And but I've gone downhill as far as my 
momentum and my energy and everything, and it really bothers me. The, I need to know why. <laughs> yeah, the thing about estrogen is that estrogen, as I said earlier, it does have risks. It can increase your risk of stroke and heart attack, blood clots that form in the lungs, some dangerous conditions. So as I mentioned earlier, if, if there's a really good reason to take estrogen, then have that conversation with your doctor and say, this is why we need to do it, but be sure that it's actually gonna get you where you need to go. Um, I think what you're describing, if you're not feeling well, you might just need some attention from your primary provider just to be sure nothing else is going on. Uh, I don't normally see estrogen prescribed just for patients who are declining, so please you might wanna get that checked into. I already have uh, it, it talked to my doctor about it. He, he just does not respond at all. So I'm very disappointed in why I'm a very healthy person. I have no, I take no medicine. I, I don't have high blood pressure. I am not a diabetic. Uh, there's no problem. And I don't understand why I cannot continue taking the estrogen when I felt so good doing it. Yes. Well, you might want to revisit that, even, even schedule an appointment for a second, of, a second opinion and see if that might be appropriate for you. But estrogen does have some risks. All right. Well, thank you so much, Pat, for calling. And you've been so great, Dr. Pizarro. Thank this you very much. This has been a, a great edition of Healthline 3. And real quick, any final thoughts? I, I'm grateful to be here, and I'm grateful to be able to, to share my uh, interest in patients getting proper health care. I always encourage patients to listen to their bodies and also get the routine screening they need. Absolutely. And th thank you all for watching. And if you want to see this Healthline 3 again, we're going to post it on our website, ktbs.com. Have a great day and stay healthy.